Hello, folks. Welcome to e-commerce Q&A. This is the show where store owners, directors of e-commerce, and commerce managers can stay up to date with the latest tools, tech, and techniques in e-commerce. I'm your host, Michael Bauer, and I am joined by Seth Erickson of Codus Agency. You might recognize Seth from our previous episode on customer experience. And this is the third episode of a little mini-series that we're doing on timeless UX principles. And Seth being a master of those things, we thought it'd be a, a fitting conclusion. Seth, welcome. Thank you for having me. So very quickly, before we go into stuff, I want to talk about a quick review of parts one and two. In the first episode, we talked about some general truths about UX and how it relates to other disciplines like conversion rate optimization and customer experience. We also laid out the fact that we're what we're talking about in this little mini-series are the things that hopefully are evergreen content, things that are going to be always true about UX. Not so much discussion of trends, although sometimes trends illustrate principles. And then we talked about two specific principles, the first being the idea of white space or don't make me think, clarifying things, simplifying paths, making the decisions that people need to make obvious and reducing visual clutter. And the second being copy around copy and readability. So takeaway on that one was to make how to make your sales copy readable, how to make your calls to action very comprehensible and lowering that friction for people to take action based on the, the text, not only the, the visuals on your website. Today, we're going to talk about two great mistakes. And by great, and you can take that two ways, obviously like big mistakes to make, but you can also take it the other way where if you know about these these common mistakes, you can take an opposite path and really gain a huge amount of benefit. So that's where Seth and I are going to riff on this a little bit. Two different principles, one that's his favorite, one that's my favorite. I want to talk about standardization and the idea being that your new awesome UI is probably but not necessarily wrong. So, you know, people come to us and they say, oh, I have to differentiate myself from my competition, which means I have to have a website that looks different from every other website in the world. And it's got to look custom and it's got to look amazing, to which we say, sounds great. But do you understand that the difference is maybe you might want to take that a different direction than you think? Seth, where do you come into this discussion when somebody's saying, I want my website to be different? It depends on if it's right for the client. So from our perspective. So to give you an example, we did some work for a Jewish synagogue called Sixth and I. And they, you know, come from a very sort of conservative background and, you know, they looked at a lot of other sites that were uh, Jewish synagogue sites and they said, you know, we want to do something different. And when we looked and kind of took, did our own research in, in, into their area, it was very obvious that like there were, was too much sameness, right? Like everything was the same and therefore if they wanted to stand out, they needed to do something different. Like it wasn't, it was almost a prerequisite of the project. Whereas, you know, like just trying to stand up for the sake of, of standing out doesn't really make sense. It like it needs to be driven by a purpose is, is kind of my thoughts around it. So where I take that is if you're in an industry where everybody's trying to be whiz bang, maybe you need to be a little bit more uh, mainstream and emphasize yeah, I, other than the craziness of your navigation. Yeah, I mean, I think if, yeah, like if everything is the same in your industry, then it makes sense to try to do something different. But if everybody, like you said, is, is trying to be the next big thing, like sometimes the the tried and true methods work the best, right? When everybody's shooting off rockets and going all different directions and stuff and you just stay, you know, with with patterns that make sense in your UX, with with design that is usable and familiar and then everybody else can do the crazy stuff and confuse their users, <laughs> you know, and people will want to come to you because what you, you know, 
present is it's it works and it makes sense and um you know um what's the word i'm looking for it's it's not foreign flashy mm -hmm. yeah like but it it lacks substance you know when when you have too much of that so you know one of my clients famously says you know we're not building space shuttles here we're we're selling blank and then i won't tell you what what they're selling but you know it's like we're we're selling a product and so people in order for them to be willing to give up closely personal information like payment details we want to make mm -hmm. sure that they feel comfortable in doing that it's not this is not an art gallery where we want to shock them or amaze them so much as we want them to buy something yeah be comfortable trust build trust yeah all all of that stuff definitely i think this is a bit sad sometimes for super designy people because it's like they really want to do something new and different and innovative and i mean who who doesn't want to do that right but at the end of the day, if your conversion rate is going to go down because you made a particular design decision, maybe there's a way that you can get the both of best worlds. But, you know, it, it, it's, this is a, a difficult balance to, to drive. So there's three areas where we see standardization being an important consideration. First is in layout, which we would define as how a user orients himself in the site. So if you think of your physical environment, the, where the walls are, where's the TV, how small is the room, that's kind of the metaphor to think about. So on a website, mm -hmm. is this a full screen layout? Is it a, a, a fixed boundary layout? How big are the images and, and the text on the screen relative to the size of your screen? That'd be kind of like layout. And then navigation, how they're moving through the site. And then finally calls to action, how people are going to take action based on what they're doing on the site. Seth, do you, do you advocate a particular level of innovation versus standardization for things like layout, navigation, and calls to action? That's an interesting question. We, what what I advocate for, and it's something that I've taught a lot of the designers that have worked under me, is the idea of flow. It's something I've never really heard other people talk about. Maybe maybe they do. Maybe they call it something else. I call it flow. And so to me, what flow is is if I look at a site, the site should be designed in such a way that guides my vision and allows my 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 vision to move around the site smoothly. And, and so in, in most cases, I'm trying to draw the eye down and, and I want to have pieces that, that connect together in such a way that it becomes a fluid experience. And so, you know, you and I had talked recently about all these symmetrical websites and I, you know, was kind of ranting about how I'm so tired of the symmetrical webs websites because they're, they're safe, right? Like, and nobody's really trying anything at this point. Everybody's just making squares. Can I just say, and, can I just jump in and say that almost every single Shopify website does this? Very, yeah. very symmetrical, very, very boring visually. Yeah, and so yeah, and so what um so we and and we don't always use this principle, like, but it's one that we've used for a long time. And so we want people we want to guide them visually in a way that says, Ooh, I I'm looking here and oh now I want to look over here and oh now I want to look over here, but not in a way that's like they're they've had too much coffee right like it's like jittery and bouncing and like your eyes just going 20 different directions at once and um but you know so like and to do that like it, you almost have to create more of an asymmetrical design and and to do that to get people to look around and see things and have white space and supporting that and so so that's one like for us that's a that's a huge thing that like 
we uh, apply a lot of, but then sometimes we have clients who say, this is our style guide. You have to do stuff this way, right? And so we do it that way and and then try to improve it. And something I wanted to mention on, on your point about, you know, being crazy and innovating is I think like innovation really only works when it's seamless, right? Like when you don't really have to think about the jump from the old way to the new way, right? Like you use the example of the iPhone. Like we had, you know, push button phones and then all of a sudden we had, you know, flat glass and we could just touch the flat glass and we had the visual representation of what we already knew. That was a seamless transition. Nobody had to learn like how to use the phone again, (laughs) right? But then if you do something crazy and now it's like, I need to learn how to use a phone. What, you know, like that, like that doesn't push things forward for people. And so, um, I think Apple has been very good about like creating more seamless, uh, transitions in their innovation. And it's something that I don't think people realize, like, you know, we, you know, like they're selling those, those air, air buds or whatever the AirPods, you know, yeah. like, like hotcakes. And, all they did was they took something that people are already familiar with and they took the cords off, <laughs> right? Like that was a marginal innovation, but you know, like people were able to transition into that quickly. Like they didn't have to learn something new to be able to use it. And I think from an innovation standpoint, like with shopping carts and whatnot, there are probably things that could be done that would cr- like where people like don't have to think about the process as much or you could make it more seamless. And I'm sure you guys probably work on that on a, on a regular basis, but that's, that's where I think like breaking something works. Like if you can, if you can make it almost like magic, mm-hmm. right? I mean, if, if you think about like the hamburger button, you know, the three lines mm-hmm. that everybody's familiar with, that's an innovation, right? People now know what that button means. I remember when it first came out, I thought, man, that looks really dumb. And then very quickly I realized, oh, that's great. It saves a bunch of space. It's kind of not an amazing icon or anything, but it serves a very useful functional purpose. And now everybody knows what it means, and you don't have to put menu underneath it, although you can if you want. So I, maybe one takeaway is that we would definitely advocate starting with common UI patterns. I mean, let the, mm-hmm. let the crazy design world innovate new website patterns and let Twitter spend millions of dollars teaching people what new button types mean. You don't, as an e-commerce store, probably not a good use of your funds when you might actually be confusing people if you're coming up with a totally different navigation, let's say. Uh, Calls to action would be another area where you want to explain, like we talked about on the last show, you want your calls to action to be incredibly easy to understand. Like it should be like falling off a log to know, oh, this is a button. This is a link. I can click on this. And that's the the whole idea there. Seth, I want to talk about another principle. And this is one that you said is your... The biggest one where you see mistakes being made in UX? Yeah, empathy. I mentioned earlier, like when I started, I, so I started in UX in 2004. You know, as I, as I said, Flash was going strong <laughs> then, and every website was Flash. But people spent more time thinking about themselves and than they did about their end user. And, and that is still a problem today. I think it's part of the human condition. It's that selfishness that we, you know, you like, you see it with startups a lot. Like they come up with ideas that are great and then nobody wants it because the idea was great for them. But, and, you know, we worked with a startup that, you know, was doing fantasy games and it was a year and a half into the project before 
somebody asked the question, you know, are the games that we're providing to people fun? Like that was a fundamental question that should have been answered before the project started and, and you know, investments were made and, and other things <laughs> happened. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's the biggest thing to me because at the end of the day, it, it always comes back to people, right? Like people are always using your app, your site, your, your whatever. And if you don't understand those people or care to understand those people, then things tend to backfire in your face. So that's my, that's my quick two cents on that. <laughs> so, I mean, what do you think the solution is there? The empathic problem? I don't know. I mean, I, like, I think it's something that can be learned. Like, in my mind, I, I can think of two people that, that do UX for CODIS, and one of them is, is very logical, very ordered, and the other is very, you know, like has a high emotional quote, quotient. And both of them have learned UX. And I think like the logical ordered person, like it took a lot of like, stop putting yourself into the situation, stop using yourself as the, you know, as the profile, <laughs> like having those conversations and, and starting to say, you know, you need to, you need to turn this thing around and, and try to look at it from the other side. You know, it just, it really is, is having that understanding, but I don't think it's hard if you care for, care about people. Like if you care about like what you're doing, you know, but if you don't, or you're just like trying to fill a role, then I think it becomes incredibly difficult. Let's try and bring this all together. I almost said, let's get real. (laughs) This is one of the, this is one of those shows where I feel like it's like they're big picture, super important things that are constantly being violated on most websites. Let's maybe... Maybe we can say a, a few of our favorite things that, that we see. I'll talk about some of my favorites. So one thing I love to see is when the user experience of a website is very targeted. And this would have to do with another area called positioning. But when you pull all these t- things together, what you're really doing is you're communicating to a user, hey, we understand who you are. We understand what your problem is. And we're giving you this solution to that problem. Mm-hmm. And we're making this, it's kind of a risky thing to do that, right? You're not being vague or ambiguous. You're not saying it depends. You're saying, we offer this, and we think that this is going to help you, and here's why. It's a persuasive yeah, statement, it, you know? It sets you up as the expert, like, because you focus on this one thing. You're not, you know, the smorgasbord of problem solving. You are the, the guys who do this one thing in this area and it make it helps build trust. I think it makes people more secure and, and like, you know, if you, if they have that pain. So yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. Mm-hmm. We're actually putting together a project right now where we help uh, companies drop most of their product catalog. That's not working. And then just focus on the core catalog, 80% on this, you know, put 80% of the emphasis on the 20% that's going to create the results, 80-20, and then mm-hmm. take the top product or product segment and do a few different things to experiment with dialing in the user experience all the way. And we've seen that be a really interesting exercise to see what kind of conversion rate increase you get when you go with the full vertically focused funnel aligned with one particular product line. It goes beyond just doing like a microsite. What's one of your favorite things that, you, that you've seen Something that makes you just like relieved or excited when you see it. You know, this is like, <laughs> it's funny that like, well, there's, there's a bunch of things. 
I like it. I like it when people start to use animation more to improve their UX, right? So drawing the user's eye to something that's important because it's animated as opposed to making it as big as possible or bright pink or, you know, like it can be much more subtle and like it doesn't, you know, like animation is one of those things where, you know, a little bit goes a long ways. <laughs> it doesn't require things to be like flying across the page and whatnot, but I like it when, when you can engage the user on a different level as opposed to just making everything stat static and flat. So that's, and, and HTML5 is starting to make that a little bit more possible and, you know, more and more I'm seeing people doing, doing just that and it's just more engaging. Well, how can uh, folks who want to learn more about UX, design-centered thinking or digital transformation, which we hardly touched on, but it's all about <laughs> doing innovation in a smart way, how can they get in touch with you, Seth? Well, we can, they can reach us through the website. It's codisagency.com, K-O-D-I-S agency.com. You can always email me at Seth at Codis Agency. I like to get lots of questions whenever people have them. So, you know, that's, that's I think that's the best way. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, thanks, everybody, for bearing with us as we've slowly rolled out this little mini-series. And we look forward to answering any questions that you'd have about UX. This is one of our favorite things to be doing. And, you know, like, I, I think you can look at our, our client list and see that we take a lot of pains to really help people come out with amazing UX. We're not, we're not trying to get you to pay us to do this. We just would like to take a look at your, your, your problems and your questions and maybe give you some, some insights if that would, if that would help. Uh, you can pay us if you want to, but you get the idea. And then there's one other thing we're wanting to do. Speaking of being empathic, we want to get your input about what we should be talking about on the show. What problems are you experiencing? There's a little survey we put together. It's at celery.com, S-E-L-L-R-Y.com forward slash survey. You go there and fill out the form. We'll be sure to send you back the results and so you can get a feel of what other store owners and, and operators are experiencing as well in terms of pain points. You can also email us at podcast at celery.com if you just have a quick question. And otherwise, the show notes are at ecommerceqa.com. And we'll look forward to dialing in with you next week. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Seth. Thank you.